Welcome to the Red Life Podcast, a podcast about living as a socialist in this world. I'm your host, Kieran Fatima, here with my co-host, Moxie. If you like what you hear and want some bonus content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. Welcome back, everybody, to Red Life Podcast. My name is Kieran. And I'm Moxie. Welcome. Today, we're discussing mental health and capitalism. This is a topic that's close to both of our hearts. And we just want to discuss a few things about what mental health means, what mental health means under capitalism. Exactly. Like, I think there's a lot of evidence that says that Basically, people are suffering to great levels, epidemic levels, even pandemic levels from the effects of capitalism. And they're presenting themselves um, in the form of depression and anxiety being two of the most leading causes of mental health and mental illness. And I just want to say too, Kieran, that we're not claiming in this episode to be experts in psychiatry or mental health treatments. We're just really wanting to have a conversation about why there's so much um, challenge for people around dealing with mental health, in particular, depression and anxiety. Yeah, we're not doctors. We are not, we're not giving medical advice and things like that. So everybody should go to their doctor and get treated for whatever issues that they're having. We do that ourselves. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. In fact, it's something you need to do in order to cope with living in this world. So I, totally. I just want to I just want to clarify that right off the bat. And I might say that again, just as a reminder for people tuning in the middle of the episode. But mostly we wanted to discuss, for example, a few factors in this. We wanted to break this up in a few different ways. Firstly, we wanted to talk about this from an anthropological point of view. So in terms of sociological and anthropological perspective, there there is definitely evidence and there are studies that have been done that the advent of capitalism in the form of colonialism and things mm -hmm. like that definitely has increased or even created or invented mental illness in people yep. who were colonized, the kinds of mental illnesses and addictions and things mm -hmm. like that, that were not there before. Yeah, totally. And imperialism too, Kieran. So if we go back to colonialism, you know, um, indigenous people, at least, you know, here in Turtle Island, pre-contact, pre-settler contact and colonial contact, there's been no evidence that there was alcoholism, <laughs> for instance, which is you know, at epidemic levels in a lot of Indigenous communities. You know, colonialism really deeply, deeply impacted the the health of Indigenous communities and introduced things like like addictions and and just the the mental health impact on Indigenous communities as well from colonial from colonization. You know, the 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 theft of land, the manipulation, the gaslighting that colonizers did, the breaking of, of agreements, all of those things deeply, deeply impact a community. The breaking up of communities, the relocation, the dislocation of communities, all of those things have a direct relationship to trauma, and trauma has a direct relationship to depression and anxiety, right? So if you look at things like imperialism and the wars, the constant wars that in imperialist states inflict on other states, that creates a population of, you know, traumatized individuals, right? So 
you know, in my opinion, this is this is like a, a massive factor to the global condition of depression, anxiety, PTSD, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and it's growing. In fact, you know, I've seen studies where there are studies showing that with the increase of capitalist of market economy, there has been an increase in depression, anxiety, yeah, various personality disorders, even mm-hmm. things like addictions, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, capitalism itself is traumatic for people and capitalism is traumatic no matter where you live. But if you live under this constant economic and political oppression, of course, it's going to affect your brain. And Mm -hmm. the thing is, one of the things that's insidious about it is that capitalism makes you believe that it's just your fault, right? Yes. It's just you somehow. It's not related to the larger picture you know, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. something is wrong with you. And Kieran, but that's such an important factor in looking at at this this issue of mental health, right? It's like it's so individualized or it's only looked at in a biological way as opposed to a psychosocial environmental way. So with capitalism destroying our environments, literally destroying our food sources, destroying our air, that's going to affect us. You know, these are all interconnected, right? Like our social factor, whether we have a safe, stable and loving environment to grow up in, that's going to impact the way that our biological brain develops, literally. Yeah. And if we can't have those environments uh, around us, which many of us don't, because of capitalism and imperialism, we are going to be direly impacted physically and biologically. And even intergenerational trauma, actually, there's lots of different discussions and research that has come up around intergenerational trauma being sort of passed down, not even not just through behaviors or familial behaviors, but also biological components. Right. There's a a biological, social and environmental connection and interplay that happens. And it's not just the individual. And it really pisses me off when that (laughs) when that's messaged to people like somehow it's our individual responsibility to deal with our depression. Right, right. Well, there's a field called epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Epigenetics is the field that's the study of inheritable phenotype changes. So changes that occur outside of the DNA sequence. And this actually is what the intergenerational trauma can tie into, which is that there are changes that can be biologically driven and and passed down, inherited, that are not necessarily just the DNA changes that we we talk about. So it's 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 an interesting field, but you know there is a biological factor, like you said, to the passing down of mm-hmm. intergenerational yeah. trauma, and we know for a fact that living in poverty and which is which causes extreme amounts of stress can actually contribute to cognitive damage. Right, mm-hmm. it can actually sh- shrink your brain into, you know, in ways that hinder your memory or planning, decision making, things like that, and that all of that can lead to depression and anxiety, as well as other issues. Right, so there's definitely a connection between your environment and your biology, yeah. and I don't yeah. think it's just a one way thing that only you, you know, your biology does not exist in a vacuum. Right, so. You know, we're part of the world and the world affects our biology as well as much as we might affect the world. Right. I think that sometimes we don't necessarily see those connections. And especially when we are talking about the health industry, the pharmaceutical industry, which we'll get into more, but it tends to individualize the problems. Right. 
So it's all about you and your mind and your brain and mm-hmm. it's not connected exactly. to anything else. You know, and the the idea of like there was this link that we have brainfacts.org neuroscience and society an interesting article about exactly what you're what you're talking about, you know, how the social structure we live in shapes our brains and uh, hence how capitalism shapes our brains. <laughs> so, you know, when for instance mm-hmm. there was um there's a lot of evidence that when children live in poverty or war-torn zones because of imperialism, poverty contributes to, quote-unquote, shrinking parts of the brain essential for memory, planning, and decision-making. And this will then lead to depression, anxiety, and other developmental delays in our, um, in our hegemonic culture. So things like ADHD, things like, you know, OCD behaviors, eating disorders, all of those things are so connected to exactly this this type of thing, right? So the the idea of it being individually our fault that we are suffering from depression or mental illness is is mm-hmm. bullshit. It's total bullshit. There's 100% an environmental It's not factor. our fault. Yeah. And And um, I think it can be really empowering also to understand that it's not just you. You're mm-hmm. not alone. And you didn't cause these problems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That these are these are problems that exist because of the larger structural problems that we experience ourselves as well as we observe around yep. us. So there are people, for example, who are depressed who don't seem to have any material issues, right? That are sort of, you know, the suburban depressed, right? Yeah. But there's, I think, there's, I think, a debt that we carry as people. Mm-hmm. And even if we're not personally affected by some of these problems, you know, like poverty, like inequality, mm-hmm. like racism and all these things, that we still carry a debt for our fellow human beings. And I think that that's part of, that's my personal theory, is that I think part of... Oh, no, I think so. Yeah. The collective the collective feeling that we have too, like we're collectively experiencing a capitalist society or an imperialist society, like we're, we're collectively experiencing that. So that's going to transfer in our relationships. We're going to pick up on that. Like, if that makes sense, does that kind of make sense? Like totally, totally, absolutely. And I think it helps, for example, for me, you know, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, major depression, as well as uh, generalized anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I have ADHD, adult ADD, I was diagnosed with as an adult. Me too. And- All three. <laughs> Kieran, we are so similar. Right. <laughs> oh, look at that. We didn't even know that, right? Mm-hmm. But we are we can feel it. You can feel it, I think, yeah. sometimes. So for me, in my case, I know that it helps me. It helps my mental health to do some things for other people, yeah. whether it's being part of an organizing group or a party or being some kind of an activist, it actually is part of my mental health need Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. So not just for my own needs, but all either, but for other people. So it actually can be therapeutic to to do work for others. And it's really, I think people really don't always, I don't think we talk about that enough in our culture. Mm Kieran, what you just said is an important factor because like, you know, marks around human nature, like we, we're, we're built to be sort of social beings and creative beings. We want to, we want to be, the things that we produce are supposed to be ideally in our human nature reflect an extension of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be this, this sort of creative way of being at the root of who we, what makes us human. And, you know, the idea of, us not being able to do that because of the social structure we live in and the economic structure we live in 
around working our butts off. And you know, that, that, you know, back into the industrial era of like, all of a sudden, we became extensions of the machine, rather than the production being an extension of ourselves, right? So we, it, it all got mixed up and, and screwed up. And then, oh, all of a sudden, mental health issues are, are growing as well with, with more industrialization and more right. production happen and, and us losing sight as human beings, the um, connection with the things that we produce, right? Exactly. I mean, that's the basic Marxist concept of alienation, right? Mm-hmm. The Marxist analysis of alienation, both alienation from labor, from your labor, from the work that you do, you are constantly alienated from the labor, right? Like, as well as being alienated from yourself and from other people. Exactly. There's a great passage from, I found this webpage by a professor, I believe, at York University, Asher Horowitz. And I'll just, Mm -hmm. I'll link, I'll link to the passage, I'll link to the essay in, in the show notes, but I just want to read one of the paragraphs from it. It talks about alienation, right? Marx's theory of alienation. And so one of the paragraphs, it says, in making a commodity as a commodity for the owner of the means of production, I not only lose control over the product I make, I produce something which is hostile to me. We produce it, he possesses it. His possession of what we produce gives him power over us. Not only are we talking here about the things that are produced for direct consumption, more basically, we are talking about the production of the means of production themselves. The means of production are produced by workers, but completely controlled by owners. The more Mm -hmm. that we, the workers, produce, the more productive power there is for someone else to own and control. We produce someone else's power over us. He uses what we have produced in order to wield his power over us. The more we produce, the more they have and the less we have. If I make a wage, I can work for 40 or 50 years and at the end of my life have not much more than I had at the beginning. And Mm -hmm. none of my fellow workers do either. Where has all this work gone? Some has gone into sustaining us so that we can go on working, but a great deal has gone into the expanded reproduction of the means of production on behalf of the owners and their power. Society gets wealthier, but the individuals themselves do not. They do not own or control a greater proportion of the wealth. So I thought that was really a great passage. The whole essay is excellent. I'll link to it. But I thought yeah, that that is. was really excellent how it explains how we produce when we are wage laborers, any kind of job that we have in capitalism, we are producing we are producing power for those other people who have power over us. Yeah, we the are 1%. producing and, and that's the core. That's the core of the alienation. We are alienated from our own work. Our own work becomes an alien to us. And even just as a basic example, if you're a factory worker and you're producing cars, a lot of these workers can't even afford the product that they are making, right? And and I mean, it was quite clear in that passage that you read, but even just thinking of it, like how often can we actually afford to to buy this really expensive purse that's being sold to us on the, uh, on the market? Or how often can we afford to buy a house that we're that we're building or, or on the cons- constructing, like all of those things create this massive sense of disconnect to our to our work, to our labor, and it's, it's depressing. Absolutely depressing because we are not we are not supposed to be working in a way that isn't a part of who we are. Our activity, our actions, our work is part of who we are, 
and it should be an expression yeah. of who we are. And that's and a creative expression too. Yeah. Like the, and and that does not mean that everybody needs to sit and write symphonies, you know, or create <laughs> paintings. I mean, if you want to, that's one thing. But like But work is creative. Creating though. a beautiful house can be an artwork, you know, it can be artistic, it can be creative. Create, you know, raising yep. a child can be a creative process. Cooking an cooking a big meal can be a creative process. But under capitalism, all of those basic everyday things become an extension of this this thing that we're producing for, you know, yeah. the capitalists, essentially. Like we're rushing home to make a quick meal because we got to go to the next job. So it's not creative anymore. We're even raising our kids to be little tiny pawns of capitalism, right? We're just raising them to go and join exactly. that same system. And raising children is supposed to be a beautiful, creative expression of humanity. You know, it's, and this is what I think Marx meant by this, the idea of human nature, right? Like we are so alienated and disconnected from our basic fundamental aspects of what makes us human. The, the, like, cause I really do, like, if you were to think about all of the little things that we do in a day, are we connected to that? Are we being mindful? You know, that, you know, whole term mindfulness. We don't have time. <laughs> That's become a, mindfulness has become in its, its own industry because it's like selling oxygen mm -hmm. back to us. It's like, of course, we need to be mindful all the time because we should be doing yeah. everything with our full being instead of having mm -hmm. to mentally be somewhere else. Because what we're doing has nothing to do with myself, with my full being, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, everything that we, we do in our lives becomes commodified as well, totally. right? And it's like, like you mentioned, sold back to us. Like, because we're just always struggling to just make ends meet too, just in a basic way. Most of us are struggling to make yeah, ends meet. Yeah, I mean, it's like annoying and it's it, it causes a sense of resentment to have to think about anything outside of just the job that you have to do because you don't have the mental energy or the physical time to spend on it and then you see you see it as superfluous and that can create anxiety that can create you know a sense of resentfulness and a sense of anger you know and uh, mm -hmm. so yeah that manifests itself in so many different ways and there's this um article that we'll also link to in in the show notes it's um it's on it was in monthly review and it's um you know, a theory of mental health and monopoly capitalism. So these two uh, social psychologists, Paul Barron and Paul Sweezy, talked about, I'm just going to read a passage here. So, quote, among their social sociological investigations, they identified the negative consequences of capitalism for mental health, drawing attention to the manner in which the organization of capitalist society conflicted with the essential needs of the individual. So that's like... And then they said capitalism, it was argued, is incompatible with the development of positive subjective well-being with neurosis pervading monopoly capitalist society. So it's like alienation essentially is, is a fundamental component of capitalism. Yep. It, it, like we're always going to be unwell. Yeah. Our mental health is always going to be a big part of being the product essentially because we become a product of capitalist uh, societies right. not only is capitalism bad for mental health capitalism needs mm -hmm. to create mental illness mm -hmm. in order to exist 
Exactly. That's the whole thing. Exactly. It's, it's not a bug. It's a feature of capitalism. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when we know that, you know, because medication, like for me, medication has worked really well. It certainly helped me cope with the conditions around me a little better. You know, I'm always trying to find better ways to to cope and to, to manage uh, stressful factors. But medication is beneficial. And there's lots of scientific research that proves that. So I just want to say again, I'm not somebody who's going to discourage people from trying different ways of, of dealing with living in a capitalist society because there's, there's things at our disposal. Maybe they're not always accessible for everybody, but there's, there's ways that we can try to manage the, um, the symptoms of depression, anxiety, and that sort of thing. Definitely. Right? If you, if, you know, I'm on medication for my various uh, mental health issues, and I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Medication is like a crutch. You need it. And when you're leg is broken and you have to walk around in a you know shitty environment you need a crutch mm -hmm. and that's okay mm -hmm. like i don't think there's anything wrong with that and i don't want to discourage anyone from from taking medication please do continue to take the medication that you have been prescribed and figure it out with your doctor yeah what you need and don't need anymore. yeah but that being said kieran i mean there's sometimes like in my work for instance you know i'll be working with somebody who doesn't have a home they're sleeping on the street and, you know, they go to see a psychiatrist, psychiatrist is going to medicate them because the psychiatrist can't provide them with a home <laughs> because housing is so commodified. So access to housing to a basic fundamental feature of a human need is unachievable for a lot of people. And that and, ha and simply having housing could be the thing they need instead of medication, right? But because they can't get housing right away, medication is going to, you know, sort of to some extent I mean, help somebody. I mean, I think that uh, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that material conditions are the basis. And then after that, medication can be helpful. But without meeting material needs, medication by itself is not going to solve the underlying problems. Yes. So I yeah, definitely if you are, you know, uh, in, in the origin stories episode, I talked about how I lived with all this anxiety and and uh, constant insecurity that comes with being an undocumented uh, immigrant and then a refugee and everything and having to be separated from my family and everything like that. And, you know, exactly. those are material realities that I had to live with. And I, I was on medication throughout a lot of that period. And it did help me keep my head above water in order to do the things that I needed to do to uh, survive that situation, but medication did not solve any of the any of those problems. And what it did do is that it helped me keep my head clear enough to be able to do to be able to survive on a day to day basis. Yeah, it did help me do that, but it it did that at a cost because it wasn't always doing that. There were medications that were bad for me, you know, that had side effects, that had whatever counterindications with other things that I was taking. So. You know, it's not like medication is just a cure-all and it'll just solve your problem and it'll give you euphoria or something either, right? Yeah. But it does, it can help, you know, when you're having a panic attack, when you're, which I used to have, I used to have severe panic attacks. I needed medication at those times to be able to not have a panic attack. You know, that didn't mean the, the reason I was having a panic attack did not go away, but at least I stopped being unable to breathe, right? So... I definitely think, yeah, there's definitely something to it. Of course, if you are on the street, medication is not going to solve your problem. 
Mm-hmm. but it might help you cope a little bit. And I think that there's some value in that. Mm-hmm. But we should not, I think there's way too much of a, an emphasis in liberal media on acting like medication or even therapy is going to solve your problems when and, the, and ignoring the yeah. material realities that people have to live with, that people have to deal with. Well, that goes back to what we were saying earlier, like the liberal media, you know, oh, medication, medication, medication. But liberal media often will sort of highlight the medication factor and not look at the very fundamental social determinants of health, right? And the access to housing, access to good, healthy food, access to at time so you can socialize and be with your family and connect with people who make you uh, feel like you're, you know, a valued person. So all of those things are really hard to access for a lot of people and it's getting harder and harder. So I think that interplays a lot with the growing epidemic of mental yeah. health, right? You know, even in psychology, you know, the, there's a field of social psychology and even within psychology, there are different schools of thought. So some are very, very individualistic and then some are that are a little bit more sociological in their outlook. And for example, uh, Maslow, Abraham Maslow's uh, pyramid called Hierarchy of Needs, you know, the, the first part of the pyramid, the biggest part of the pyramid is uh, physiological needs, the bottom of the pyramid, which is the f- the need mm-hmm. for food, water, warmth, rest, and there are other ones, you know, physiological needs. The next one is safety needs, security and safety, knowing that you're not going to get robbed or raped in the middle of the night. That's, you know, you need shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it goes up from there, becomes more abstract. It becomes about intimate relationships and friends and then esteem, like your sense of accomplishment and prestige and then sense of uh, achieving full potential. But, you know, I, I mean, I think that there's a ways to kind of analyze the hierarchy of needs. My point is that even within the field of psychology, there are more materialistic outlooks where we, you look at the material needs of people, not just the sort of abstract, oh, what do I feel about myself kind of, you know, thing where it's like, I feel great about myself. I don't have a home to live in or I can't, I don't know where my yeah. rent is coming from next month, you know? Like that, that is affecting what I feel about myself. I'm sorry. Like there, there's no pill for that. Yeah. I think that also yep. one of the things that happens that we're seeing is a distrust in science because, and I think some of it is related to people realizing that these pharmaceutical industries and all of these ads for medications and things like that don't speak to their problems. And then they start distrusting all of science and they start, you know, there's, they start believing in conspiracy theories like, you know, don't wear masks around COVID, you know, COVID uh, is not stopped by masks or whatever. So there's like this, what this does is it breeds a kind of cynicism towards science itself. And that's dangerous because there is a need for scientific investigation in the world in all kinds of reasons for all kinds of reasons and breeding in this kind of cynicism about science which is what individualizing all of this without looking at material reality of people individualizing mental illness can really cause a serious cynicism against science exactly yeah. I also yeah. noticed that a lot of health organizations don't talk about capitalism, you know, like, you know, they'll talk about physical needs, material needs. They'll talk about, you know, the commodification of relationships and our needs not being met and things like that. But they won't identify capitalism. Did you ever notice that? Oh, yeah, totally. And it's, you know, I mean, maybe in a roundabout way, some people will. Like, I know there's a couple of doctors that I've worked with in the past 
who, you know, if I'm accompanying a, a, a client to, to uh, an appointment with them or a health appointment with them, like they'll say, geez, I wish I could prescribe access to housing as, as a prescription, or I wish I could prescribe access to nutritional food instead of food bank non-perishables and as a prescription. So, but what they are saying is that because of capitalism and the structural environment we live in, the economic and social structure environment that we live in, that's something they can't easily prescribe, right? Even though that's, they know as a doctor, that's what they need. So it's like, or maybe they should say, I wish I, I could prescribe socialism. Right. <laughs> now that would make sense. As, as an anecdote to your depression. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be a I good prescription. I think we need more doctors to say that. I think we need doctors who are willing to step up and say it. Yeah. Because you know what? You, you, see, I, the, you see the healthcare systems in Cuba, for example, and it's a really holistic system. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's world renowned. Mm-hmm. It's the, there's so much that the Cubans suffer from because of the blockade that's imposed on them by the mm-hmm. United States. But they have yeah. made their medical system into a global powerhouse. And that's not yeah. easy to do without money, you know. But they've mm-hmm. done it mm-hmm. and they're doing it. And they have a very, from like the moment a baby is born, every aspect of their health is taken care of. And like when it comes to food, yeah. when it comes to vaccinations, when it comes to uh, wellness and, you know, mental health, all kinds of things, they have a really holistic all around system, which incorporates both traditional like scientific medicine as well as other non sort of Western ways of, of medicine and stuff. So like holistic medicine and stuff too. So it's really interesting how they're doing it. And that's just one model and they're doing it with so little. If they had more resources, I don't even, I can't, they, they would probably solve mortality itself, I swear. Yeah, probably. I was just looking at something too. Like that, I think that's a great example, by the way, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's also something that's never talked about is the fact that Cuba has uh, the uh, like a leading world-renowned healthcare system. But <laughs> but when capitalist media in in Canada, for instance, they never mention that. They never mention that their healthcare system is better than ours because we like to pretend that Canada's healthcare system is so wonderful. And in a lot of ways it is, especially in comparison to, to the United States, right. right? But it's, it's not universal healthcare. It really isn't. Like there's a lot of people who don't get their prescriptions paid for. There's a lot of people who don't get their dental paid for. So that comes, that's uh, more of a private insurance aspect, right? Yes, certainly we can have surgeries paid for, but there's a wait list because of cutbacks to the healthcare, to our uh, public healthcare. But yeah, so Cuba is, is much more ahead uh, than yeah, we are for in Canada. Sure. And I think that needs to be used as a more as, as an example more often than the Canadian healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. And especially <laughs> considering that they do not have the resources that Canada has. Canada is not exactly. being hounded by the US f- to not do business with anybody in the world. That's the yeah. that's the kind of blockade that Cuba is living under, forcibly living under by the US. And in some cases Canada is complicit, you know, with that too. So Exactly. Canada has always had a sort of independent relationship with Cuba, but still there has been some problems where Canada always ends up siding with the U.S. against Cuba, which is sad because Cuba has done so much, you know, including giving uh, free scholarships to black people in the U.S. and indigenous people in Canada as well to study medicine in Cuba. 
So anyway, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, we'll do an episode just on Cuba. In fact, I think we're going to do several episodes on Cuba. So that's coming up. <laughs> Don't worry. But some of the other social and structural factors that contribute to negative mental health can also be inequality uh, and structural abuse. So it can be, you know, gendered abuse, right? So there could be, there's gendered aspects to, to mental health, racialized aspect to mental health. Immigration causes immense amount of harm to mental health. There, there's definitely a lot of that. There's a really interesting study by the NIH which I was surprised, actually shocked. The NIH is the United States National Institute of Health, right? So I was surprised from 2016, they had a study and the title of it is Anxious, Depressed? You might be suffering from capitalism. <laughs> I, I was shocked to wow, find that Wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I can't believe they're, they actually, somebody got that title through. And it's actually a pretty good article. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to link to that, too. It's actually really good, but I'm just going to read a little bit. I'm just going to read it from the abstract a little bit. These findings suggest that the effects of class relations on depression and anxiety extend beyond those of socioeconomic stratification, pointing to understudied mechanisms in social epidemiology, for example, domination and exploitation. So basically, it's saying that there are it's not just the stratification, it's the system itself that can that exactly. seems it, the study seems to suggest there's like a systemic problem mm -hmm. and that goes back to what you were saying earlier about you know not being connected to the means of production right and it's like so even people who are quote unquote in the middle class right clearly if you don't own the means of production or your production or your work or can't access the product the product of your work then you're you're going to also be in this category of suffering alienation and the impact of alienation and therefore the symptoms of that which are depression anxiety totally. etc yeah. etc right yeah that article on alienation was really good too Mm -hmm. So what about the business of mental health? I mean, once we have established, once it's established <laughs> that capitalism <laughs> creates mental health, then what better way for capitalism to deal with it than to commodify mental health, right? To actually make money off mm -hmm. of the very problem that it creates, right? So, so just to share a few numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the privatization, right? Because universal health care is not universal. So if it's like, like I was saying earlier with Canada, so how much people need to spend on prescription drugs, how much people need to spend on therapy, or access to a psychiatrist. And then, you know, in, in a lot of a lot of places in the world, they need to pay for this out of their pocket. Out you, of their, you have out to pay for therapy paycheck, in Canada, right? in Ontario anyway, out of pocket mm -hmm. too. Yeah, and that's like 7500 mm -hmm. yep. bucks an hour. Yep. Like who's affording that? Exactly. The big, mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry is over is de well over a trillion dollars a year globally by now and in two in 2011 global global spending on prescription drugs topped 954 billion so now like you said it's a trillion a year it's over globally. a trillion i'm sure it's more than mm -hmm. more than that oh, and easily. in 2013 just the self-help industry right made 11 <laughs> billion in the u.s just in the US, $11 billion. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of money in the self-help industry, which is geared towards people who have various mental illnesses who are trying to self-medicate and self 
help, right? I mean, that's literally what it is. Mm -hmm. So capitalism not only makes you feel like you're alone and it's your fault somehow something is wrong with your brain for having these uh, depression, anxiety. And just to clarify, like capitalism does does affect our brain, like for sure, but it's not just us doing it. It's the environment we're in. And yeah, so just I just wanted to highlight that piece like I, I think that that's such an important yeah. piece right yeah so capitalism tells you it creates these problems creates this creates the environment which creates these problems which creates alienation and then it sells you back your own illness right in the form of self-help books yeah. and <laughs> seminars and 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 it yeah. makes that into an individualistic thing too because you have to now go out and buy these things you have to spend money right and and they they puff you up like i don't know if you ever heard any self-help stuff like it literally puffs you up it makes you feel like you're doing better like you're mm-hmm. you're gonna make it you know mm-hmm. but of course it doesn't change any material reality there is there is great literature and and there's great literature by for example the Black Panthers, right? The Black Panther Party, uh, Huey Newton's work, Fred Hampton. There's some really great writings by revolutionaries that make you feel more empowered than any self help book, and they're real. Like they're they're talking about real things yeah. and they're talking about real people and not just like making up sort of stories in your head so that you feel like you're doing something. And it's validating to read those too, Kieran. Like it's really validating to read like people who are socially critiquing our environment and our material conditions and the lack of and access to them because it, it validates you as a person who is, you know, challenged with depression or anxiety and seeing that perspective as opposed to it's my fault, my fault, my fault. And it's like, no, actually, no, it's not. It's 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 capitalism's fault. It's imperialism's fault. It's colonialism's fault. Like that's, uh, you know, that's yeah. it. And, and ultimately, it's not about blaming these other the the sort of environmental phenomena just to not blame yourself like which is what a lot of these uh self-help gurus will tell you is oh you just want to blame the environment you want to blame this you want to blame that because that fits their brand right like that's what they sell to you is that no it's you it's your problem you have to fix it you have to get you know pull yourself up by the bootstraps and things like that because that's their brand they need you to do that so that you will buy their courses right you will buy their books you will buy their bullshit but ultimately, it leaves you feeling empty because ultimately you cannot change the larger systems by yourself. You know, the larger problems in the world, you cannot change them alone. You do need to band together with other people. And if everybody's just off in their own world, own self-help like journey alone, and they're never interacting and banding together and uniting with others, then everybody's just alone. You know, you're just alone in this. And then you really do become more alienated. And I know as somebody who, you know, has read a lot of these books because my father was really into them. So he would pass them down to me, all these like self-help books. So I've read a bunch of them. And um, I'm not going to deny that sometimes it can be very motivating. Like sometimes listening to some of that stuff or doing affirmations can be motivating, journaling and things like that. And I'm not, I I don't want to throw away everything that is, I think that there's some value in some of the messaging. But I think, I think the so overall idea that you can do it alone is is very problematic and it's very questionable because it's like you need to band together with other people. That's where the power is, power in numbers. There's a reason why all change in yeah. the whole world has been done by people banding together. You know, that's how you do it. 
So, so that's, that's the, that's the, um, that's the thing I think we keep coming back to. And and it doesn't mean that your individual therapy is not important or relationships or your hierarchy of needs and stuff. Yeah. It just means that along with doing all of that as an individual, you do need to band with other people. It's not like one or the other. It's not like you're just an individual or you're another person with a community, part of a community. You both, you both, everybody is both, you know? Yeah. At the end of the day, we really need to challenge the whole structure of capitalism and imperialism for us to become a healthier society as a whole. And I really think like, what do we need to change in a fundamental root cause kind of way to, to be better, to be healthier? Yeah, uh, I think and- we need to discuss how we would combat something like this. And I think some of that we've yeah. already been talking about here. But I think we also need to think about uh, from a larger institutional and systemic point of view, you know, in the Im- immediate future, yes. we need more funding for public health. Like we need to be part of every single campaign or that we can be that f- that increases funding towards public health, towards not privatizing healthcare, privatizing aspects of healthcare, but oh, expanding healthcare so that the maximum yeah. number of people can get the kind of healthcare and all the healthcare that they need, and that includes things like me- d- dental healthcare, mental healthcare, physiotherapy, medication, medication pharmacare. So. We need to expand that for everybody because we want to live in a society where other people don't have healthcare problems either, right? Like, do you want to live in a exactly. society where everybody else is sick? Like, let's say you're rich and you can afford to get the best healthcare, but everyone around you is, you know, has all kinds of mental and physical illnesses. So, how do you live in that society? Mm-hmm. We truly want it like equal access to healthcare. Like, that's something. You know, we want a socialist healthcare system, right? We want that to be accessible for everybody and truly universal dental, pharmacy, physio. Yeah, there should be equal, you know, universal healthcare means universal healthcare. Yeah. Okay. Another way, another thing to look at is decriminalization of mental health and trying to find ways to help our communities open up spaces for people with mental health without criminalizing them or incarcerating them. I think that's really important that there be support systems. And that's part of public health funding as well, as well as social services funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people who are in the criminal justice system have mental health and addictions um, issues and challenges and are living in pretty extreme poverty conditions. So, yeah, we have to first make sure that people's social determinants of health are accessed. So go out and do housing activism. Go out and make sure that you're fighting to, to ensure public housing and, and access to public housing. Go to your local um, neighborhood meetings when a condo developer's coming in there and he's trying to commodify housing and, and fight it. Say, hey, what about public housing? Like find ways to, to look at all aspects that make us healthy as humans housing, food access. And yeah, decriminalizing of, of mental health is a is a huge, huge thing. Uh, and giving proper yeah. mental health supports in in the term of public health funding. Yeah, and organizing. Organizing as socialists, like like there's um a few of our comrades are involved in the rent strike that's happening in Toronto. And that's something right there that is a very active way of fighting to make sure people don't lose their housing during a pandemic when they don't have a job to pay their rent. So those kinds of things that it's, it's that, and that ties into collective care too, right? Supporting your, your friends, your family, uh, supporting 
your neighborhood goals around ensuring access to the social determinants of health, being involved in solidarity work, like with indigenous communities who are completely marginalized, especially like indigenous rates of suicide among teens are like through the roof. They're like triple the stats for any other group of people. And, um, doing a lot of solidarity work around that and drawing attention to the issues is also important. Yeah. And one of the things we're going to discuss in the next episode, uh, one of the big topics is going to be self-care or what what is considered self-care. And we thought it should have its own episode because we are going to delve into what it means and what it means in the liberal bourgeois society and what it could come to mean if we were to sort of take that word and expand it a little. So that's coming up. And I'm very excited to have to have you all listen to that Mm -hmm. episode as well. But I think the takeaway from this episode, uh, Moxie, is that these problems are created, the healthcare, the mental, especially the mental health problems, but I would argue other problems too, like cancers and various mm-hmm. types of other mm-hmm. diseases, are also produced by capitalist systems, by capitalism itself. But the, but capitalism also makes you believe at the same time that you are to blame yeah. individually. You know, and it tries to indi- it basically, you know, as they say, they socialize the problems and collect uh, individualize the solutions. Right. So the, the, the problems are created socially within capitalism, you know, by the social structures that capitalism has produced, in, including poverty, alienation from labor, alienation from each other, from other people, the separation from nature all of these things that create these problems, but then it the somehow the responsibility falls on you individually. An individual cannot face all of these problems alone. No. We have to come together. We do. We have to band together. Even and that's the logic of it is it makes sense if you think about it, is that as individuals we also get helped when we band together as yeah. a community collectively. And we can actually save lives too, because you know, in reality Suicide rates are going up, you know, especially for the millennial groups and, and the preteens. So we need to, we need to reach out to people. We have to make sure that our neighbors and our friends and our family members are doing okay. Like if we don't see them for a while, reach out to them, see how they're doing, do a check-in, see if they need something from you, what kind of support they might need. Like just as a regular, like kind of looking out for each other because most of us are suffering (laughs) from some sort of mental health challenge at some point in our lives. And I think it's like, if I remember correctly, the last stat I read was by the time you hit your 40s, most people between one, uh, I think it's one in two or one in three will have suffered mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And that's like, whoa, right? So just like a community safety plan or, you know, a safety plan even for yourself. Like if you're not feeling great and you feel like, man, I'm just, I'm doing really shitty. Like reach out to people, like identify people in your life who you know you can talk to about this. And we do have to look out for each other because not all of us can access medications. Not all of us can access therapy. So let's try and find other social ways of, of helping each other and, and, kind of being aware within ourselves on, on what we need, what we might need from each other. Exactly what you said. I agree completely. We have to reach out to each other. We have to connect with each other because ultimately it's in that connection that we will find ourselves and we will find our own healing 
And I think it's really important mm-hmm. that we stop taking the messaging that it's only ourselves to blame. It's only individually that we are to blame. Yeah. We have to look at each other and we have to look at ourselves as part of these larger systems and, you know, recognize the reality of what's going on. And we will feel better. That's the thing of it. It might it might sound like, well, it's a lot of work, but it's actually not. It's actually like untying the knot that capitalism knots up your brain into all this jumble of confusion. It like unties the yes. knots. Like, let's change our perspective on how we're told mental health, what what mental health is. It's your fault. Let's change that perspective and let's go into more of a radical viewpoint that actually, no, it's the society and the system that we're living in. And that's what's making me sick. And that's what's making me unwell. So let's do some radical self-care stuff with by first changing our understanding and viewpoint about why there's mental health issues here. And that I'm going to be part of the solution. I'm going to take steps to be part of the solution for myself and for others. Exactly. Yeah. So join us next time for the self-care episode that's coming up, which is going to be a continuation of some of the thoughts from here. Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to it and hope to see you there. Thanks, Kieran. That was a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Same here. Look after yourself. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Life Podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already done so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Red Life Podcast, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.